Welcome to those of you who are tuning in online right now and who are downstairs and those who are in the sanctuary. Wherever you are, I want to encourage you right now to get a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Just so you know, just a little reminder, your Old Testament is structured this way in four sections in your Protestant Old Testament Bible. You have the Pentateuch, first five books of Moses. Then you have the historical books of the Old Testament, starting in Joshua, ending in Esther. And then you have what are called the wisdom books. And there are five of those. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. That's where we'll be today in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then at the end of the Old Testament, you have 17 prophetic books. Malachi, ending with Malachi, starting with Isaiah. That's how your Bible is put together. Today, when I say let's turn to Ecclesiastes, we're turning to the wisdom books of the Old Testament, that third section. And maybe to help you, what you can do is you can turn to the book of Psalms, a very large book with many chapters, and then just go, go write a few pages, past Proverbs, and you'll come to this book, Ecclesiastes. And what I want to do today, I really have very modest goals today. Don't assume that means this will be a short sermon, but I have modest goals. I want to read the first two verses of this book and introduce my series, Vanity Fair, and this book that we'll be looking at for several weeks. And here's my goal for today. Before you go home, before we leave this space, before you turn off your computer or however you're watching this, here's why I want to get you. I want you to despair of life without God. That's my goal. And you know what? Ecclesiastes, this this book right here, it makes that really easy. I want you to despair. I want you to feel depressed at the thought of your human existence apart from the God of the universe. I I want you to despair of that. Does that sound like fun? It will be. Because life with God is fantastic. And life without him is depressing. I think that's the essence of the book of Ecclesiastes, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me me read the first two verses of this book, and that's all we have time for today. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Church of God, this is the word of God. The words of the preacher... The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Pray with me. God, meet with us today, I pray. Lord, we are your students, your disciples. We're here to learn from you, from your word. Teach us. Transform us. Holy Spirit, give us practical ways that we can live out the truth of this word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, let's talk Ecclesiastes. Let's, you know what it... I read verse 2, and I just got to say, what, what, a, what an amazing way to start a piece of writing, you know? Vanity of vanities, he says. And I, I kind of think, I guess because I fancy myself a writer sometimes, what a hook. You know, you're trying to hook somebody in. You start like that. It's like, whoa, what is this guy talking about? I got to hear what he says next. And it's a hook, too, because of what he says in verse 1. He says, I'm the son of David. Okay. I'm the king of Jerusalem. Listen up and let me tell you something wise. And to that, we might say, okay, king in Jerusalem, what you got? We're all ears. What's your message for us? And the author responds by saying, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Whoa, what? That's your message for us? You know, the word vanity is used like, every other word in that sentence. 
Let me actually read the second verse in Hebrew and see if you can hear the, the refrain, the word that's used again and again here, vanity. It's the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel, hevelim, amar kohelet. Hevel, hevelim, hako, hevel. Hevel, 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 hevel. All is vanity, 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 vanity. Oh, wow, that, that is a shocking and unusual way to start a book, let alone a book of the Bible. It's not your normal book that we're reading here. And what's remarkable is not only that this person introduces himself as the son of David and the king of Jerusalem, establishing some authority to what he's saying here, he also introduces himself as the preacher. Everybody see that in verse 1 and verse 2. He's the preacher. Look, I don't know anything about being a son of David, all right? I'm, I'm a Gentile. And I don't know anything about being the king in Jerusalem, okay? But I know a thing or two about being a preacher. I've done that before. And and I just got to say, as a preacher, I've never heard a sermon start like this. I've never preached a sermon that starts this way. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. I'm intrigued as to what he's going to say next. And so you might say, okay, preacher, what, what you got for us? Preach. Here's how he starts his sermon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Okay, what, what is he doing? Is this really his message? Van- all is vanity? Is he hyperbolizing as a preacher? You know, preachers sometimes hyperbolize. I know. Is that what he's doing? Is, is this like a bait and switch kind of thing where he's like dangling something in front of you and then he's going to gotcha, get you with what he really means later? I can't answer all those questions today because we got to read the entire book in order to understand what he's doing here. And we will in the coming weeks. I just want to address a few introductory matters in this book and get us moving in the right direction. I also want to look at this word vanity and see what this word means. Because I think the author is, in this book, he's tapping into that existential angst that a lot of us have that's part of the human condition, and he's touching that moment, that part of you that says, yeah, what is all this about? Life, death, work, existence. So, five preliminary matters. Get us pointing in the right direction. In the book of Ecclesiastes, take your notes and write these down. Or if you have a digital device, note this somewhere. Here's the first thing I want to address here, the book's name. What book are we studying here? Ecclesiastes. It's not exactly a word that just rolls off the tongue, is it? Ecclesiastes. In Hebrew, I want to point this out. The the title of this book is Koheleth, which means the preacher. So in Hebrew, the idea is that the preacher's preaching, listen up, and koheleth, that's derived from a Hebrew word, kahal, which means to assemble. So it's like the, the king is assembling. Assemble up, Israelites. I got a message for you. Kohel is about to preach. And actually, Ecclesiastes is derived from that. Ecclesiastes is a word that derives from the Greek word ekklesia, which means to gather or to congregate or to assemble. It even means, in the New Testament, the church, the ecclesia, the gathered ones. And so we have the idea here that the preacher is gathering an assembly to preach a message. The king in Jerusalem has a message for the assembled ones. Listen up. Listen up, people. Preacher's going to preach. And here's his message, at least to start. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And from our vantage point, from here in the New Testament, we, we might say, okay, well, Great, the preacher's preaching. Who is this preacher? And and why should we listen to him? You know, not all the kings of Israel were worth listening to in the Old Testament. Who are we talking about here? Well, this is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who's that? Write this down as number two in your notes. The book's name is Ecclesiastes or Hebrew Koheleth, the preacher. The book's author from verse 1, is a son of David, a king of Jerusalem, a king in Jerusalem. Who is that? Who are we talking about here? Yes, good answer. 
I hope you answered correctly on the video, but, but can you just hold that for a second? Because I've got to say something first. Whenever we talk about the authorship of the Bible, whenever we talk about who wrote the Bible, we've got to acknowledge that Holy Scripture is inspired and co-written by the Holy Spirit. Right? Can I give you a little theology this Sunday morning? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It is theopanoustos. God inspired the authors to write their Scripture. 2 Peter 1.21 says the same thing. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, when I say who wrote this book, it's understood, and I, this is a savvy group here, so I know you understand. That the Holy Spirit is the co-author, which is amazing when you stop and think about it. This is in my notes, but let me just marvel at this for a moment. The Holy Spirit that's inside of me is the Holy Spirit that co-authored this book. It's as if God has something he wants to communicate to me here, right? And I hope you approach God's word that way. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is the co-author. Who did the Holy Spirit carry along to write this book? Well, verse 1 tells us it's the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Who, who, who can that be? It's got to be Solomon, right? Some of y'all said it. Who else could be a son of David, king in Jerusalem? Now, okay, let's, let's walk through this a little bit. Theoretically, it could have been a lot of different people because David had a lot of sons. And actually, there's no Hebrew word for grandson. So if you want to say grandson, you just say son. Son, grandson, great-grandson, it's all the same word. It's the descendant, the male heir, so to speak. So theoretically, this could be Hezekiah, this could be Josiah, this could be Ahaz, this could be Asa, this could be Manasseh, this could be Jehoshaphat. But I don't think it's anybody else other than Solomon. Can I tell you why? Look at verse 12. You got your Bibles open? We're going to be here in a few weeks, but let's just take a sneak peek at another section of this book. In verse 12, the writer says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Let me see that. There's a clue here as to who we're talking about. Because Ahaz, Asa, Manasseh, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, all the other kings, all the other grandsons of David, they were kings in Jerusalem, but they were not kings over Israel in Jerusalem. That's subtle, isn't it? They were kings over Judah, the southern tribe. The nation of Israel split between the northern tribe of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah took the, the sons of David and made them kings in Jerusalem, but they weren't kings in Israel or over Israel. They were kings over Judah. So when we talk about the only son of David who is king over Israel in Jerusalem, only Solomon fits that bill. Solomon had a son too, Rehoboam, who was king in Israel over, in Jerusalem over Israel, but he doesn't fit the next test. Look at verse 16 and 17. Here's another reason I believe the author is Solomon. Ecclesiastes 1.16 says this, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Who does that sound like? It's Solomon. You remember Solomon? He was a young man, just became king. His father was gone. God showed up to him and said, what do you want? Anything you ask, I'll give it to you. You remember what he asked for? Give me wisdom. Being a king is tough. I've got big shoes to fill. My dad was all right. He wasn't perfect, but he was all right. Give me wisdom. And God gave him wisdom and even more abundantly other things beyond that. Also, the, the preacher, the author of this book, says this in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 9. It says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. Who's that sound like? Solomon. Solomon expanded the kingdom of Israel farther than even his father David. It's, it's referred to by scholars as the golden age of Israel's kingdom, the days of Solomon. Also, here's another line of evidence. If you look at the end of the book, I'll read it for you, chapter 12, but you might want to just note it in your Bible. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9, the author says, Besides being wise, the preacher, Koheleth, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. 
Who did that? Arranged many proverbs with great care. Solomon did. Who wrote at least most of the book of Proverbs? Solomon did. And besides that, who among the sons of David wrote scripture elsewhere? You've got to see the importance of this. Solomon wrote Song of Solomon. Solomon wrote Proverbs, at least most of them. Solomon wrote even two songs in the book of Psalms. Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. So why am I belaboring this point? Some of you had it right off the bat. This is a debatable matter, and it doesn't say clearly in verse 1 that it's Solomon, but I want you to know that I'm going to refer to the author of this book throughout this series as Solomon. I think there's strong evidence that points to him as the author. And I think it's significant, too, in ways that I'll show you in just a moment. But I'm going to refer to the author as Solomon, or I'm going to refer to him as Koheleth, the preacher, because that's the way he self-identifies in this book. And some of you might ask the question, why doesn't he just say in verse 1, I'm Solomon. I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe he's being coy with us. Maybe, maybe he's trying to say, don't think of me as Solomon, the author of Proverbs. In this book, I'm the preacher and I got a sermon to preach. That's how he self-identifies. For whatever reason, he calls himself the preacher, and he's the preacher of wisdom. And speaking of wisdom, write this down as the book's setting. The book's setting is Old Testament wisdom. It's an Old Testament wisdom book. And, you know, wisdom, the wisdom books in the Old Testament, it's kind of like a food processor at your house. You know, you can do a lot of good things with a food processor, but if you don't use it right, you could chop yourself up pretty good. You better know what you're doing when you use it, Right? It's probably a better analogy than that, but that's all that comes to mind right now, right? The wisdom books are tricky as you interpret them. Sometimes there's what's called foils. They give you an idea that you think is right, but you grasp it and it's like, aha, no, it's not. It's this thing over here. I'll give you an example. The book of Job is wisdom literature. And you, you can't always take what's said in the book of Job at, fel, at face value because Job's three friends, they get up and they talk and you think they're espousing wisdom. You might try to cut a slice of what they say and put it on your Facebook post and say, this is wise. And then God shows up later in the book of Job and says, those guys were dummies and they need a sacrifice from Job in order to rescue them. Aha, you were set up by Job's three friends. You know, Ecclesiastes is a lot like that with wisdom literature. Sometimes Ecclesiastes, sometimes Solomon, as he's writing here, he's setting you up. And I'm not so sure he's not doing that in verse 2, vanity of vanities. And you're like, yeah, 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 I'm after that. Ah, but I've got something else for you at the end of the book. Hold on. So watch yourself in the wisdom books. I also think this is important. Ecclesiastes, as you read it, it's setting because what's the book that's right before Ecclesiastes? In your Bibles. Just turn a page, a few pages before. What's that book right before Ecclesiastes? Proverbs, right? Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon, right? And you get the sense that Solomon is putting forth two ideas about life. There's the Proverbs view of life. And then there's Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, you know, with Proverbs, what is Proverbs like as you read Proverbs? Proverbs is neat and tidy and clean. And, and, and the principles are just so sound. You read Proverbs and you're like, yeah, that's great. Mm, I'm going to do that. And, and, you know, when I was a kid, that's, that's what I read. Proverbs, Proverbs, love Proverbs. Do this, do that, do that. Life's going to be good. Ecclesiastes comes along and it, it's like, It's like Solomon is saying, yeah, yeah, I wrote that Proverbs, but what about when Proverbs doesn't work? Then you read the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a contrast to it. Why follow the principles of wisdom when all is vanity? So Proverbs says, you know, you work hard, you get a wage, you make lots of money, you get married, you, you know, X plus Y equals Z, everything is nice and tidy. And yet we know, and I've told you before, that Proverbs are truisms. They're not promise. There's another wisdom literature thing that you've got to understand. So they're truisms. And Ecclesiastes is like the book that comes along and says, well, what about when that truism doesn't work? What about when you work hard all of your days, but then you die at age 40 because you contracted a disease? What do do you say about that, Proverbs? 
What, what about when you, you work hard and you build a business and it's your life work and then you, you sell it to somebody, some dope who just runs your business into the ground? How do you make sense of that? Sometimes that dope is your own children. What do, what, what do you do with that? The book of Ecclesiastes asks questions like, okay, we raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord to do right, good, but, but then sometimes they're not, they're not getting what I'm teaching them, even though I've been teaching them for 18 years. And then I pour my life into them, and then they get up and they move to Arizona, and I see them twice a year. What gives, Solomon? You didn't say that in the book of Proverbs, and Solomon says, yeah, but I said it in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is what you go to. This is where you go when your truisms fall apart in Proverbs. And I think, too, here's another reason I think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. You know, if this book was written by him, Ecclesiastes, it makes sense to me in the trajectory of Solomon's life. Because when Solomon was young, he was running hard after the Lord. He asked God for wisdom. He chased hard after the Lord. He pursued the Lord. But then he got old. And here's the temptation. As we age, we drift and we gravitate away from God. And then Solomon started to chase the gifts of God over the God of those gifts. Everybody hear me on this? This is a caution for all of us. Solomon started to chase and to cherish the gifts that God gave instead of the God who gave him those gifts. He started to chase pleasures. He started to chase women. 700 wives, you know. That's nuts. It was nuts in the Old Testament when Jacob had two wives. He's got 700 wives. And he starts chasing riches. And his life starts to fall apart. And traditionally, Ecclesiastes, and I hold to this, Ecclesiastes has been understood as the writing of an old, cynical sage, an old, cynical, apostate Solomon who still has great wisdom, but he has squandered it in godless pursuits now, and he's wrestling with the vanity of it all. It feels like vanity, all that I've done. I think that's right, and I think that's an interpretive key to understanding this book, this book of wisdom, careful with wisdom. I had a professor when I was at Trinity several years ago. This professor is pretty well known as a scholar of the Psalms, and he wrote this commentary as a young man on the book of Psalms. And it, you know, it's very well done. And, and I was in class with him uh, several years after he wrote the commentary, and by now he was like 65 years old. And he told us in class, he said, you don't really understand the book of Psalms until you're like 60 years old. And here, I, you know, I'm this 20-something, like, well, why did I pay $100 for this class, or however much I spent for it? I was really frustrated by that. And, and he was even saying, you know, I wrote my commentary as a young man, but now that I'm in my 60 plus, I really understand the book of Psalms in ways I never did, even when I was young, when I wrote that commentary. Listen, the older that you get, the more you understand what he was saying. The book of Ecclesiastes, I'm going to say something similar for that. You know, Proverbs, Proverbs is that book that you read when you're a teenager, when you're a young man. Solomon puts the cookies on the bottom shelf, Right? You go and you read Proverbs and you're like, oh, this is so good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my life on this. This is going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to have all these things. I'm going to have all this wealth. And, and my life is going to be awesome. And then you get to about 30. And then you get to about 35. And then you get to about 40. And you get, you get to a midlife crisis. And then you stop reading Proverbs and you, or you question it and you say, I need, I need something else to deal with the real problems of life. And that's when you go to the top shelf in the wisdom category, and you pull down the book of Ecclesiastes. And you start to wrestle with the really difficult things in life. You start to wonder about, why do I age? And why does it hurt so much when I age? And, and why does my, what do I do now that my vision's gone? How does Proverbs apply to me now as an older man who's been through a few midlife crises? You know, Ecclesiastes, let me put it this way. Ecclesiastes is the kind of book you read when you know your doctor by name and you visit him regularly, okay? When you, when you start calling your doctor by his first name, hey, Bob, hey, Steve, hey, hey Lucy, instead of like Dr. So-and-so, who I only see like once every five years, you're ready for the book of Ecclesiastes. 
when your body starts falling apart, when you, when you go to work, you know, when you're young and you go to work, it's like, Heidi, ho, it's off to work I go. When you get a little older, it's like, 16 tons, what do you get? And then you're like, okay, I need something more than the book of Proverbs. I need Ecclesiastes. Help me to make sense of this. The grind of life. The challenges of life. If you have questions like that, painful, honest questions, if you're willing to ask those questions, you're ready for the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, it, I mean, if you're, if you're a teenager, just keep reading Proverbs, okay? Just keep reading it. 20-something, just keep reading Proverbs. But, I mean, keep coming to church and listening to these sermons, right? And, and log, log this away for when you turn 40 and you have that first midlife crisis. Because you're going to need it. Just as a modern parallel to this, you know, Jordan Peterson's super famous now. He's like an internet phenom. He wrote that book, 12 Rules for Life, which, I mean, it's okay. I read it. I actually appreciate what he wrote in there about that has parallels to the Bible. But now he's got a new book that everybody's kind of talking about. And it's called Beyond Order. And, and you almost get the sense like Jordan Peterson's like, when my first book fails you, go to my second book. You know, when my 12 rules for life don't quite make things work, you need to go to my second book, Beyond Order. He, he said as much in an interview I watched with him. And I, I think Solomon has a similar kind of approach. Here's Proverbs. When Proverbs doesn't work for you, Come to Ecclesiastes. You'll get something out of it once you've failed a little bit with the truisms of Proverbs. And let me give you a clue to interpreting both of these books, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. I've preached through Proverbs before. This is my first crack at Ecclesiastes. This is kind of a dream come true, actually, to preach this book, because I love this book. But it's a hard book. But I just want you to know that there's a thread that weaves both these books together, like, like two shoe, shoe strings on your shoe. And if you, you want, really want to understand Ecclesiastes, you really want to understand this book, it's, it's, it's one of those books that you have to read with the end in sight. Because how does this book end? If you want, you can turn to the end, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, and see the key to how to understand this book. Because Solomon says there, the end of the matter, all of this has been heard. So, 11 chapters of philosophizing of the preacher preaching about all of these difficult things in life. And here's what he says is the end of the matter after all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's the summation. That's the end result. And some of you, even as you hear that, what does that sound like? It sounds like Proverbs chapter 1, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. All this philosophy, 11 chapters of the preacher wrestling with the hardships. Where does he end up? He ends up in the same place that he started in the first chapter of Proverbs. Fear God. Fear God. You better figure out how to live your life in obedience to God. That's the essence of life. And that's, that's the theme of this book. Write this down as number four. What's the book's main theme? What's the main theme? Reading chapters 1 through 12. Here it is. All, all is vanity apart from God. All is vanity apart from God. Solomon says this at the beginning of the book. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. In other words... Solomon is cautioning us what life without God is like. And he knows. He was a young man, he chased God. But now as an old man, he's rejected God and he's saying, don't do what I do. Don't be like old Solomon, old cynical Solomon. Do, be like young Solomon. He says at the end of the book, it's the end of the matter. All who have heard, fear God and keep his commandments. I wish I had done that. It's almost like Solomon's testimony here. Don't be a dope like me. 
and waste periods of your life chasing things apart from God. All is vanity without God. If anybody knows that, Solomon knows that. With all of his wealth and riches and wives and everything else, all the other pleasures and wisdom and knowledge he has, all is vanity apart from God. Here's what I've learned on the matter. Fear God. Follow him. I need to clarify something here at this point. What does vanity mean? Some of your Bibles, if you have an NIV Bible, the NIV is a fine translation. I'm not here to badger that, but if it says meaningless, that's not really what this word means, that everything is meaningless. The Hebrew word is hevel, and it means vapor. It's not that life is meaningless. It's not that all is meaningless. It's that life is vapid. It's ephemeral. You're like, try to grab your wealth and it, they put you in a grave penniless. You work hard and you're industrious and you make money and you think that's the key and to success and then your, your next door neighbor inherits millions of dollars and he's lazy. Like, what is that? You know, you go work out three times a week. Try to build yourself up and you die of a heart attack at age 50. And your neighbor who smokes two packs a day lives till he's 90. There's, there's a vapor to it. There's, yes, there's truisms in the book of Proverbs and these things are helpful, but at the end of the day, the, we all end up, I don't know who said it first, but the, the pauper and the prince both end up in the same six feet under pose in the ground. They both die penniless. What's the point of it all? It doesn't mean meaningless. Here, here's a good cross-reference, which is interesting because I quoted this verse last week. Let me quote it again for you. Psalm 144, verse 4. The psalmist writes, Man is like a breath. Hevel. You ever, you know, like on a cold day, you see your mist. You see your, the, the fog of your exhale. And it just kind of disappears. Man is like a breath. Hevel. It doesn't mean he's meaningless. It means that he's, he's puny and weak and frail. Remember Psalm 8 last week? His days are like a passing shadow. And we know he's not meaningless because God loves his puny, frail little creatures, us. But we are vapor. You know, so, some of you woke up this morning and you're like... I. I thought we were still in 2020. When did it become 2021? Like how, how are these days moving so fast? Is it really almost October? What happened to January? I have this friend, he's a scientist, and he has all these crazy theories that I like. He's the best kind of scientist. And he, he actually has this theory that as you age, time speeds up. And, and that's kind of, if you think back in your life, it's like, yeah, age... 11 to 20, I remember almost everything that happened in that stage of life. Maybe not all of you are like that, I know, but that's how I am. And then it's like, I turn 20, and then the next day I turn 30, and then I turn 40. Like, what happened all those years? They just, they just sped up as I aged. One of the things that I like to say from this pulpit often, just as a reminder to everybody, is that we'll all be dead soon. I like to encourage you. We'll all be dead soon. And there's a little bit of Ecclesiastes in that statement. There's a little bit of Ecclesiastes in my mind, even as I say that to you. Be careful if you're putting your stake in this world or the things of this world because you're going to be dead soon. And it's, it's heaven, our lives, our breath, our existence here. And similarly, Solomon's wrestling with that same issue as Psalm 8, Psalm 144. Everything is fleeting. Everything is vaporous. Your money, your health, your work, your family, your life, it comes and it goes. And then this is, this, this is discouraging too. The world just kind of marches on without you. Someday you'll have a funeral. And people will come and grieve you at that funeral. And then they'll go back to the church, maybe the fellowship hall downstairs, and they'll eat potato salad. And then the next day, they might remember you for a minute. And then two years later, they'll forget you entirely. So if you're living for some kind of 
legacy in this world that will last forever on this side of eternity, it's Hevel. You are chasing Hevel. You better be living for something more than that. All is vanity apart from God. And how does that jive with the book of Proverbs? Here's the point of the book. Here's the main theme. You better have your life. You better have your existence. You better have your identity anchored to something more than just the principles that God gives you. You better have your life anchored to the God of those principles. If you come, I mean, I think, I think a perfectly secular person could read the book of Proverbs and say, yep, 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 yep. I don't need God. I'm just going to do these things and life's going to be great. Oh, Okay, we'll read Ecclesiastes. Your life better be anchored to something more than just God's principles or the Proverbs of life. You better be anchored to the God of those principles. Because life is fleeting. It's vanity. It's vanity of vanities. Hevel, hevelim. It's like the Holy of Holies. It's the supreme vanity to do that. Solomon's not the only one to recognize this. Let me read you a quote from Mark Twain. We like to think about Mark Twain, at least this is how I remember him as a kid, as like this funny, witty, silly guy who wrote these fun books. Let me give you another take on Mark Twain, okay? See if this encourages you a little bit. This is him writing in his autobiography. He says, a myriad of men are born, they labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps up on them. Infirmities follow. Shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them. And the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. Sheesh. Thanks a lot, Mark Twain. I like you better when you're witty and funny. It gets worse. He says, and they vanish from this world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they have left no sign that they have ever existed. A world will lament them a day and forget them forever. They will mourn you, then they'll go back to church and they'll eat potato salad. Then another myriad comes to take their place copies all that they did goes along the same profitless road and vanishes as they vanished to make room for another and another and a million other myriads to follow the same arid path through the same desert that accomplished the same as the first myriads and the myriads that came after it accomplished what does it all mean what is it all for what all what do they accomplish mark twain says nothing they accomplish nothing I heard a quote this last week. Nice little tie-in to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the Jewish writer, Shalom Aleichem. He once described life as a blister on top of a tumor with a boil on top of that. That's a modern-day Jewish approach to life. A blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. The American poet Carl Sandburg, he He compared life to an onion. Life is like an onion. You peel it off a layer at a time, and sometimes you weep uncontrollably. The British playwright George Bernard Shaw, he said that life was a series of inspired follies. That's all it is. It's a bunch of foolishness. Shakespeare in Macbeth. I've said this before. Life's but a waking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's your life, a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. What are you doing here, Pastor Tony? I'm I'm trying to... Remember my goal for preaching today? 
My goal is to get you to despair of life without God. How am I doing? You know what? I, all these secular philosophers, if, if you read them and you think like them, you'll get depressed. And they, they almost sound like Solomon and Ecclesiastes. But here, read this on the screen. Here's a great counter to this way of thinking. Warren Wiersbe says in his response to these honest declarations of life's vanity, the Mark Twain's of this world. He says, what a relief to turn from these pessimistic views and hear Jesus Christ say, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Or to read Paul's majestic declaration in the New Testament, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not hevel, it's not in vain in the Lord. Isn't that good? Life apart from God is hevel. Life with God is anything but vain and meaningless. Listen, hear, hear me on this. This is why I love the Bible so much. I'm so glad that Ecclesiastes is in my Bible. I'm so glad that he asked the hard questions in this book that I sometimes ask in my moments of doubt. But can I say something else? I'm glad that Ecclesiastes is not the only book in the Bible. Are you all with me? It's kind of like Song of Solomon. I'm glad Song of Solomon is in the Bible. I'm glad it's not the only book in the Bible. And that's all I want to say about that, okay? I'm glad that somebody, Solomon in this case, addresses the hard questions of life. And I'm glad he's willing to confront the seeming senselessness of our life. But I'm also glad that Christ Jesus spoke directly into the seeming senselessness of my life. And he said, I am the meaning of your life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me and find purpose. Come to me and find forgiveness of your sins. Come to me and find a life that transcends your current, fleeting, vapid, vain existence. You know what you see in the book of Ecclesiastes? We'll get into this more, but you see a Genesis 3 world. You see a king, a man, Solomon, wrestling with the Genesis 3 world. You know, almost all the hard questions in this life can be answered in the first three chapters of Genesis, you know? All the hard questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Who created us? Who created human beings? Genesis 1, Genesis 1, Genesis 1, Genesis 1. Why are human beings different from the rest of the created world? Why do men marry women? Why do we, why do we have that? Why do we procreate? Why do, is there a command? Yes, Genesis 2, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Read it, it's there. Those big questions are answered there. But you know, there are other questions, big questions, hard questions that, that aren't covered in Genesis 1 and 2. You've got to get to Genesis 3. Questions like, why do people die? Why do we age? Why is life so hard? Why do I have to go to work every day and provide for my family? And it's thorns and thistles every day. Why do I have an ongoing battle with sin in my heart? Why can't it just be removed? Why can't it just be gone? Why do I have to fight all the way to death to, to, against sin, the sin that I want to commit? Why is our world so broken? Why are we so messed up? Genesis 3, Genesis 3, Genesis 3, Genesis 3, Genesis 3. Because our forefather and our foremother in the Garden of Eden rebelled against God and brought down an avalanche of consequences on our world. And Solomon's just going to deal with it. This life is hard. This life hurts sometimes. You're going to die someday. Genesis 3. Look it square in the face. What do we do about that? Thank God for two things in the midst of Genesis 3. Thank God that we still have some good that we can experience in this present life, though, that we, though we are sinners in a fallen world. We don't deserve any good. And then secondly, thank God, and this is even better than the first one, thank God that this world, this Genesis 3 world as presently constituted is not our eternal home. 
and that Jesus Christ entered into this world of vanity in order to rescue us from a vain existence for eternity. And we will live with him. And when we live with him, nobody is going to say in the new heaven and the new earth, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Nobody will say that. And speaking of Ecclesiastes and its connection to Christ, you can write this down as number five in your notes. What is Ecclesiastes' relationship to the New Testament? How do we make sense of this book in light of the revelation of the Gospels and the epistles of the New Testament? Here it is. Christ turns our vanity into victory. Christ turns your vanity into victory. I don't know who first said that. It's probably Warren Wiersbe. Tony Evans, I've heard him say that too. It's so good I had to steal it. Christ turns your vanity into victory. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's never... I mean, it was, it was part of the Hebrew Bible, so I know Jesus read it. I know the apostles read it. But they don't quote it in the New Testament. There might be a few allusions to it. It's, it's definitely not like the book of Isaiah that gets quoted dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. But there are a few allusions to this book, and I want to close with this. One of the most well-known allusions to Ecclesiastes is Romans 8, verse 20. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Is that on the screen? Y'all see that? For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That word for futility in that verse, for the creation was subjected to futility, futility. That's the same Greek word Paul uses there that the LXX uses to translate hevel in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you almost get the sense that Paul was reading the book of Ecclesiastes as part of his morning devotions. And then he read, oh yeah, you know what the cure for futility is? You know what the cure for vanity is? It's Christ. And the reality is that Christ came into our world. He subjected himself to its futility, to its vanity. He became like one of us, Hevel. And he died for us. And he actually submitted submitted himself to the darkness of human nature, allowing himself to be crucified by sinful people, taking sin upon himself on the cross, Christ entered into a world of vanity to work victory for us, his followers. What does the book of Ecclesiastes help us do? It helps us to despair of life without God. It helps us to see the futility and the vanity of our lives. But praise God, Ecclesiastes isn't the only book in the Bible. It points us to a better way, to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And in him, we find ultimate life, ultimate meaning, and even an eternity devoid of vanity. I don't know where you find yourself this morning. I feel like Ecclesiastes is very practical because if you watch the news for any part of the day, you just kind of end up in this place. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You know, we go into a, to Afghanistan, we chase off all the terrorists, and then we leave 20 years and they just come right back. What is the point of all that? This evil we tamp down and then evil sprouts up somewhere else. There's no end to it on this side of eternity. If you feel that sense of futility, of senselessness to it all, you're right where God wants you in understanding how meaningless your life is without him, how futile it is without him. And if you find yourself 
feeling that, right, that existential angst that Solomon taps into. Here's your solution. You fear God. That's how the book ends. You despair of life without God. And then you put your faith in the Savior who entered into this vain world and turned our vanity into victory. Pray with me. Lord, once again, we're here even as we read the Old Testament Testament, and we marvel at our Savior. We marvel at His sacrifice. We marvel at His entering into this world that Solomon describes as Hevel. You must really love us, Lord. You must really love us to be willing to do that. And Lord, we do feel a draw to this world, the things of this world. And sometimes, Lord, we gravitate to the gifts of the giver instead of the giver of those gifts. And they take our hearts and they monopolize our affections like they did with the old cynical sage Solomon. And Lord, we're here today saying, help us not go that direction. Help us to see the futility of life apart from you. Help us to see the vanity of life apart from you, God. And Lord, the truth is that even if we have nothing in this world, even if you take everything away like Job, even if we live lives of suffering and pain and die horrible deaths, Lord, which some Christians do in this world. That is not the end. Because you have purchased for us forgiveness and given us a new life and a new hope and an eternity devoid of vanity. God, keep our eyes fixed on that in the midst of the distractions of this world. God, give us help as we work through this book. There are some depressing elements. But even in that, Lord, there's hope. Hope in you, hope in Christ, hope in our eternity. Drive us towards that as we study your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.